Hi, my friends. I do this work with all my heart for you. So please contribute generously to Future Primitive. my friends who listen to Future Primitive. Today, I'm on the line with Kosha Joubert, and she is in Findhorn, and as you know, I am in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Kosha was born and grew up in South Africa. The system of apartheid deeply influenced her life's path. She decided to devote herself to the study and practice of trustful communication and community building in diverse settings. She has been living in intentional communities for the past 20 years and currently serves as president of the board of the GEN, International and Secretary General of GEN Europe. Her last 10 years were spent in Siebenlinden, Germany, Recently, she moved to Findhorn, Scotland, with her two children. She co-authored the Echo Village Design Education Curriculum, which can be found at uh, GaiaEducation.org, and she organizes EDE courses and trainings on social tools internationally and works as a facilitator and consultant. She co-edited Beyond You and Me, Inspirations and Wisdom for Building Community with her partner, Robin Alfred. She has just finished her first book, published in Germany, on the power of collective wisdom, and is looking forward to translate it into English. It is a joy and honor for her to be an active part of the Echo Village movement. And it's a joy for us to be with you on the phone today, Kosha. So my first question to you would be, could you describe how your heart opened to being in community and living with other people rather than the isolation that most people live in? Thank you so much, Joanna. Um Maybe just before I plunge in, I think some people might not know what GEN stands for. Yes. So just to clarify that, the Global Eco-Village Network. Thank you so much for that introduction. So, um, yeah, as you said, I was born in South Africa and grew up under apartheid. And um, not only did I have the joy of of growing up in an area of our beautiful planet which is which holds a very rich depth of natural biodiversity and natural power like the power of Gaia the earth is very strong mm. in many parts of South Africa so I grew up very close to wild nature but also I grew up in a culture and a society that was deeply unjust and um, where separation was at the core of the systems. Um, and growing up in that was, was painful because there were 
that did not add up. On the one hand, a, a very Christian upbringing, and on the other hand, seeing that, seeing and sensing injustice around me, and feeling that I was a part of it, but in an, for me, not not in a way that I could understand as a child. And I was a member of a relatively open-minded yet conservative Afrikaans family and also went to a white Afrikaans school. So also asking the questions that I had into my family and into the community that I grew up in was not an easy thing at that time because the community felt very threatened by the reality that they had co-created. So um, when I became a, a teenager, when I was 14, 15, actually, we moved to Holland, and I really could find out much more detail about the apartheid system, mm -hmm. because within South Africa, the information flow was very directed and very limited. So once outside of South Africa, I had a much richer detail of what was actually happening, and my anger, which coincided with the natural anger of a teenager and the willingness to resist two narrow structures um, really came out. And I started working for the anti-apartheid movement for the ANC. Um, and also I studied, which was the best way I could understand changing the world. Both my parents were at the university in South Africa. Um, so science seemed like a natural pathway for me to follow. Mm -hmm. And I studied cultural anthropology and linguistics with the aim of understanding intercultural communication. But then when I was, this was in my very early 20s, probably 20, 21, I was part of a group of people who organized a conference in Amsterdam called Mali Bongwe. And it was a conference for South African women community leaders to meet up and to create a national women's network in Holland so that women from who were in exile at that time mm -hmm. and women from South Africa could all join. So I've been working to help organize this conference for months. But when the women actually arrived, I was so shy and so guilt-ridden as a young Afrikaans woman mm -hmm. that I wasn't really able to communicate to them. And that was the point where I fully understood that even after nearly four years of university studies, I hadn't actually learned anything about real communication amongst real humans. I had studied books, but I hadn't gained experience. And it touched me very deeply. This was also a time when Nelson Mandela had just been released. Mm -hmm. So I had a, a radical insight in the core of my being that science was not going to give me what I was looking for, and also that the activist political pathway of fighting against existing systems was not going to satisfy me in the depths of my soul, and this came at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know what to do, but I had a very, very strong urge, like an inner calling, to go back to my country, to go back to South Africa and just walk my land. I had a longing to simply be able to connect to my land and not to be um, told where to go and where not to go, but simply to walk the country. And this was in 1992, 1993 mm -hmm. on that cast. So Nelson Mandela had been released. Apartheid was shifting, but it was a time 
before the system had really changed and violence was really at a high. Mm-hmm. So it was quite a, a dangerous thing to do as a young white woman to simply go out and walk. But I was somehow so at a loss about what to do with my life and what was really meaningful to me that I felt like I had no inner choice. And I walked up the coast of South Africa, from up from Cape Town, up the coast, walking for many weeks, actually, um, sleeping outside on the beach, meeting many people as I walked up, everyone being totally astonished at this phenomenon of a young Afrikaans woman walking alone. And interestingly, the only times I was really threatened it was by my own people, by the white Afrikaans, especially men that I met. Mm-hmm. Um, the, Af- the, the African community, the different black African communities that I passed, were all hugely um, astonished, appreciative, humorous about what I was doing, but definitely not threatening. So that was my experience. But what that journey did, I, I saw it as a pilgrimage, and I ended up in one of the homelands. Um, Transkei at a place called Port St. John's mm-hmm. and that's the first time I ran into community because there was a community of black and white people living together there, white people who had left South Africa itself because they couldn't bear going into the police force or bear going into the army or just couldn't bear the system and that moved into the homeland of Transkei and then, of course, the people from the Transkei who lived there. And together they were learning how to build huts, learning how to pull the fields, allowing their children to grow up together. And basically they were creating the new within the old system without fighting the old system. And, that, and also reconnecting to the earth, reconnecting to their roots in many, many different ways. And I stayed there for, for one, two months. And that's what set me off on my path around intentional communities. It was this experience of people not fighting, people not thinking, but people coming back to loving and caring and fulfilling their dreams in the here and now and building the new within the old. So that was both in connection to nature and in connection to each other. And that was what, what put me on my path with the, the, with the community movement, the Global Ecovillage Network. I, somehow I just saw something there that made total sense to me as a young woman. Mm-hmm. More sense than anything else I had met before. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for that uh, beautiful, heartfelt description of some of your adventures. And what I began to uh, think about when you were talking is, yes, the the underlying current that I feel with most people is loving, but is, is basically love. But it's in my communication that I separate myself from others in my in my language. So I want to ask you, could you speak about what you have learned about language that uh, brings reunion and reconciliation? Hmm. Yeah, thank you. I mean, language is the most amazing 
amazing tool that we humans have created. And I've always been fascinated by it. Mm. You know, the Aborigines say that with language, we sing reality alive. You know, how do we create reality through our language? Um, but to come more to the, the core of your question, the essence of your mm. question, mm. you know, I, I do believe that we, we speak a language of the heart, which creates connection. And there's a language of fear, which creates separation. Mm-hmm. And I think those energies, like where we come from, how we feel while we speak, we can watch very carefully. As soon as we feel threatened by a conversation, as soon as something that someone says triggers our past pain and trauma, we contract. And as soon as we contract, we energetically start separating from each other. So it happens very, very um in a very subtle way, continuously during our everyday life with each other, you know. And I think that's a a beautiful thing to start watching and witnessing very carefully in ourselves. And on more collective levels, of course, one aspect is the actual language that we speak um, and the difficulty sometimes to understand, you know, especially as we're speaking in English, to really understand the how deeply the um, the importance of English in the world is connected to a colonial past mm. that we haven't fully healed. So to be very aware of our you know, the status that we have as we speak English and how we're keeping out people from the mainstream through the language that we speak. But at the same time, my experience with people has always been that it's not the language that we speak and whether we understand each other's words which creates heart connection or not. I've experienced such deep heart connection with people when we don't share the same language. Mm -hmm. Um, How directly that can be felt if we allow ourselves to touch each other deeply. Um, And even more deeply than, than language, I feel, is will to you. You know, I I have had, as more and more people have in our world today, I have had the experience of moving between radically different worldviews. And in the move, even in my in puberty, you know, I've since lived for many years. So I lived in Holland for many years. I lived in Germany for many years. I now live in the UK and in Scotland. Um, and I've traveled to many countries, but especially that when in my puberty, you know, when I moved from a very conservative white Afrikaans community where I was like the most modern thinking person in my class, mm-hmm. you know, and then I moved to Holland at that time and I overnight I became the most conservative <laughs> person in my class, you yeah. know. It was like the time where people were smoking hashish, they were doing petty thefts as a, you know, something that was kind of in... They were, it was a punk movement. They were listening to hard rock. They were having sex with each other, you know, and all of that was totally foreign to me. And I, I really moved within days. And also I spoke Afrikaans, which is like a pigeon Dutch and has a lot of 16th century Dutch words. So it seems extremely old fashioned and very funny to Dutch ears. So I moved from being a hip in person to being the most <laughs> old fashioned person in my clique, mm-hmm. in my class, yes. and that happened overnight, you know, so to see how our personality is really dependent of the worldviews, 
and of the culture that we're currently moving in. And I see that all the time. I move a lot between cultures. I, I, you know, it's it's amazing how in the Global Eco Village Network today, my main intention has been has stayed the same within Gen at the core of Gen. We cultivate conversations between all regions of our world. So we have very strong networks in South America and Africa, in Asia, in Europe, in North America, and starting up in the Middle East. And in all our core working groups, we have conversations between all these different cultures happening. So it's, it's um, yeah, to cultivate a witnessing, a knowing about how hugely different our experiences are, especially when we come from the West, how um, a sense of superiority often mm-hmm. taints our way of being. Mm-hmm. You know, how just, for instance, I work a lot with our African networks and mm-hmm. feel African and European myself. But, you know, how often, you know, how Africa is portrayed as a continent of disease, poverty, pain, you know, but actually when you go to Africa, you visit some of the communities, there is such joy, such deep-rootedness in culture, such solidarity. You know, they're very often if I compare young Africans with young Europeans, I, I really have no idea who is better off, you know, not at all. But it's just to, to become much more deeply aware about our judgments and our, yeah, our own worldviews and how we are often caught in our worldviews. I think if we can become much more aware of that and allow for a much larger space of not knowing, mm-hmm not knowing to arise in us as we meet each other mm-hmm. and look afresh again and again. There is so much more mutual understanding and pleasure and celebration that becomes possible. Uh, so those are some thoughts. Yes. As you, as you might already be noticing, I'm a very meandering thinker. So I love it. I might be going off course here and there. I love it. There is no, of course. I love, I love it. I love that you, uh, you speak about not knowing, and I think that uh, uh, we need to tattoo that, or I need to tattoo that on my forehead. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Um, every every living being is uh, is a is a, a different universe that. Uh, is to be discovered. So, uh, Koshi, I want to ask you how you've lived in this community, Sieben Linden in Germany, and now you live in Findhorn, and you, as you say, you've meandered to many countries. How do you see resolving a conflict between uh, between people who are willing to live together, which is quite, you know, different from the, um, the conflict uh, arising from people who, uh, who, who are not willing. Hmm. Well, maybe I start in where I, 
you know, I've just, be, I've actually just come back the day before yesterday from a, a journey to Palestine and Israel. Wow. And we had a Gen, Gen Palestine conference in Tulkarim in the West Bank. And then we had the launch of Gen Israel in a kibbutz just outside of Tel Aviv. So I just had a very intimate experience of a country in total separation mm-hmm. and where such pain grows out of the separation. And a lot of it reminded me of South Africa and of the apartheid system and the fear that, but also a system that inflicts humiliation on the Palestinians in many ways out of fear which is very understandable. So there's there's an extreme level of not knowing and just listening that I try to bring to the situation. You know, I actually, 25 years ago, I was um, part of a rainbow, rainbow gathering and rainbow journey. I don't know whether you know about the rainbow. Oh, yes. We, we traveled, and I was very, very young, to Israel, Palestine, to for six months having rainbow gatherings in different beautiful places in nature and bringing Palestinians and Israelis and Arabs together um, for conversations with the aim of building peace, you know. Mm-hmm. And now it's 25 years later, and all the peace-building efforts have led to a situation where there's a huge wall separating and checkpoints and people needing permits to move and yeah in a way the breeding of mutual violence so very very painful to see painful to watch and at the same time in the gen movements you know these kind of people who would so love to connect more deeply to each other as Mm -hmm. palestinians and israelis and to see how it's it is so so difficult at the moment so I just want to acknowledge the pain of the situation and also the heartfulness and the courageousness of the people on both sides that I I was honored to meet there. Mm-hmm. Just bring that into the space. And, yes. Yes, and uh, send our compassion and love yes. and care to that situation and also really acknowledge how, um, also with apartheid, it felt like there is huge movements in history human evolution, mm-hmm. that we are not individually capable of shifting. You know, it feels like it's collective movements um, which have their own timing. Apartheid had its own timing of, of really being, you know, incredibly painful for so long and then at last falling apart. And also I think the situation in Israel-Palestine will have its own rhythm and its own movement, and we can give our all as individuals to to bring our heart to a situation like that, and we cannot force it. And it's a similar experience that I've had within communities, you know. We have great tools um, to work with conflict. I think awareness is the highest tool, the very mm-hmm. highest tool that we can bring to the situation, personal growth and awareness. Um where we learn through hard experience that whatever we project onto others and whatever we blame others for, there will, there's always four fingers pointing back at ourselves. So 
a deep invitation to get to know our souls and our own shadows more. So that kind of awareness work. And then we have fantastic tools like nonviolent communication, like process work by Arnold Mendel. Yes. Um, many different ways. However, also I've I've noticed that some of the communities that focus most of of these methods are have some of the deepest conflicts. You know, so it's. You know, in the end, I think that it's um, it's also about embracing embracing conflict as a a part of our rubbing against each other, as bringing diversity together, so finding our our joy with conflict, mm-hmm. and also, you know, in a big way, I think as a culture learning to move from the mind, from the head to the heart when we touch conflict. Um, Because it feels like we've, especially in the Western culture, we've learned for a long time that we we try to solve conflict with more words and rational arguments. And this, uh, personally, I'm very tired of. I find it quite tedious often. Unpleasurable. <laughs> yes. But um, when we allow to go deeper with conflict and really see it, you know, what is actually being touched in the depths of our being, what are the emotions that are being touched, and allow ourselves to become naked and vulnerable with that and really show the longing in our hearts or also show the pain that is being touched deep within us through the conflict and really to be with that and to you know, to allow ourselves to become vulnerable, I think then conflict becomes an incredibly rich um, tool that allows us to emerge in more and more complete ways as individuals and as groups. And um, yeah, so I think in many ways we can, on a very personal level, by being with ourselves and the inner conflicts that we carry, and also on an intimate level, by really deeply being with the conflicts and intimate relationships and holding those with care and love and attention, and then taking that to the community level. And again and again, bringing this deep attentiveness, in a way, to the issues that bring up conflicts. It's a very rich place for integration, healing of the past, and... Um, I think very often conflict is also an expression of what I would call evolutionary tension, where something wants to show itself, something wants to move forward, which is not just the old story, but is something new, and to really search for that within the conflict. So, yeah, that's, yeah, I think that's enough for now. Yeah. Well, the... The image that came to me, Kosha, while you were speaking was uh, conflict as compost and how, uh, how compost nurtures the earth and is of the earth and how out of compost we, uh, we find the gift of feeding ourselves and others. So that's... That's the image that came through for me. Yes, absolutely. It's, it's, that's a beautiful image. Really helpful because, um, 
You know, I feel like conflict often leads us to our own shadow parts. And, you know, especially many people who are in this environmental and social justice movement, if we want to call it that, Mm -hmm. blessed unrest, Paul Hawkins, you know, that kind of movement. Many of us are very attuned to our high dreams of beauty, harmony, healing that we're aiming for. And we find it quite difficult to be with the pain of the world and the distress of the world and the destruction in the world. And a part of that is also that we find it quite difficult to be with conflict. And we find it quite difficult to be with waste, including compost, the yucky things of life, you know, all, all in the world that we'd rather not see, that we'd rather not be around. And I do think that part of the solution is to to um, look at that in ourselves and <clears throat> generate love for the unloved parts I love of ourselves, it. of our societies, of our cycles, you know. So for me, it is, you know, there is like when I lived in the eco-village of Seamlin, and it's, a, it's an eco-village that is quite radically ecological, so it's lowered its ecological footprint to only... 30% of the average German settlement of the same size, so that's quite radical. It means lowering by 70%, so that's huge. Mm-hmm. We only have compost toilets, so, you know, that was the first time that I really learned what it means to, to empty my own toilet, you know, to have a family and to use the toilet and to carry the bucket out into the woods and to empty it and to watch it turn into compost. You know, it's not as wild as I'm describing it now. It's very, very um, well-insulated um, um, boxes that the compost is put into, so um, very well-prepared and well-designed. But the beauty of it, the beauty of it, of not flushing it down as waste into water, polluting whole layers of water, but actually taking it into the forest, watching it turn into beautiful, rich compost, and then using this for our reforestation and the planting of little trees so that something that is yucky in a way and that's a bit smelly turns into something beautiful and rich and nourishing that allows future to grow, future trees to grow. Um, So that's simple experience. And I think it's often the same thing when conflict happens, that there is yucky parts of ourselves, sticky parts, you know, where, uh, the parts where we are jealous, where we are um, fearful, where we are um, not willing to embrace the new, but are attached to old safety or, you know, wh- whatever, where we're not willing to listen to the other. All those parts, you know, to turn all of that into, like, to be soft with ourselves around that because it's part of who we are, but also to... To sit with it as a rich compost and to allow ourselves to be born from it as more mature human beings. So, yes, I love your image of compost. <laughs> <laughs> so, Kosha, I um, have a question for you, which is, you have a, a piece uh, by about and by Malidoma Somi, about living in community with the ancestors. And uh, I would love it if you would talk a little bit about that, because, again, 
as Mike Scott says in one of his songs, bring them all in, bring them all in. Do you know that song? I don't. I'm so sorry. Oh, listen. I'm sure I would if I heard it now, but just from that I don't. So. Yeah. Oh, listen to, uh, you probably do, listen to Mike Scott because he's so, he sings about Findhorn and... Uh, and he does have his, this song that just goes on and on with this mantra, bring them all in, bring them all in. So how about the ancestors? Bring them all in. Yeah. Hmm. yeah um, hmm. Yes, I mean, I'm experiencing it on a very personal level at the moment that my, you know, my own ancestry, which comes from the Huguenots that went down to South Africa in the 17th century. But also, I, you know, most of these old South African family have mixed blood, you know, and there's definitely Bushman blood running in my family, you know, because there are some expressions in my mm. body that are not the way that my eyes are set that are definitely not just European. So I feel deep within myself this, connection to indigenous culture and at the same time the connection to the colonialists um, yeah and I, I feel like you know in turning against apartheid I also turned against a part of my own culture and in a way I cut myself off from part of my own roots and I feel like um, it's quite a question about how to create the new and really embrace our own very personal roots with our parents and grandparents and mm -hmm. great-grandparents and going back through time and how to um, take responsibility also for the history, he story, you know, mm -hmm. knowing that very often there's large parts of history and the she story that are not um, so visible in the he story books. But um, so one thing when we look at ancestors for me is to really look at the the story of our world and especially I'm just touched by the story of colonialism and especially slavery. Yes. And we have quite a, a strong experience at the moment in general. I had a strong experience when I went to Senegal and visited the Ile de la Gorée, which is an island that slaves were shipped out of Africa from. You know, and there was around 20 million slaves shipped out of Africa to the brave new world in, in a period of just over 100 years, maybe 150 years. Around half of them died before they even arrived. And just the pain of that. You know, and when I grew up as a child in South Africa, we still had these stories of, you know, if you go into the wild places of nature, you'll be snatched away by the tokolosi, by the nature spirits. And really understanding how deeply a whole continent has been, has been formed and colored by the experience of slavery and the extraction of slaves from communities and how that still influences modern-day Africa. But then, um, so after being there last year, January, and visiting this island and being very, very deeply touched by it, I was invited later in the year to come to Colombia and visit our networks in Colombia. And 
I was invited to the city of Cartagena mm-hmm. in the north of Colombia and was totally amazed to see exactly the same architecture as on the Ile de la Gorée and to understand that this was the main port that the African slaves landed in. Wow. And just outside of Cartagena, there's beautiful islands, really like the picture card touristic islands that were, um, when the slaves were at last set free, were the out places of Colombian society that the slaves settled on, many of the, the freed slaves. And there are beautiful communities now of Afro-Colombians living on those islands. While at the moment, of course, the islands are becoming more and more attractive to tourists, Mm-hmm. tourism and tourist development and the lands are being taken away again from the slaves and uh, the former slaves and they're, these communities are standing up and are saying, you know, we've been shipped out of Africa, we've been cast away to the outskirts of society and now you want to move us again, you want to take away our land again and we're standing up and saying no to this and some of them are being successful and actually able to claim the lands that they've been living on for the past hundred to two hundred years and how touching it is then for us within the global ecology network to bring together these afro-american communities with the afro with african community movement mm-hmm. which we've been doing for the past years in the gen africa conferences and it will happen again in senegal so just the beauty of that yes and i think there's a lot of healing that we still need to do around the colonial past. I think it's it's forming our modern day world in much stronger ways than we like to acknowledge. So that's part of ancestry. <laughs> this, this. Part of the story that comes up. But also I just want to say, you know, when we support communities to transition into eco villages, because mm-hmm. we work both with traditional villages transitioning and intentional communities. And wherever we come to build community, we say that the four dimensions of sustainability are equally important. Ecology, social, economy, and culture. And that what we see today all over the planet is people who feel that they're not okay as they are. And especially, I'm speaking about young people feeling that they're not okay as they are. And young women in Asia getting their eyes fixed. Yes bleaching their skin, young women in Africa straightening their hair, bleaching their skin, young women in Scotland becoming anorexic, you know, young women everywhere, and I'm, you know, especially women, but also young men, you know, no one's feeling comfortable in their own skin anymore. And I think it's a very strong part of healing on the planet to reconnect our ancestry, reconnect our roots, see the depth of sustainability knowledge and wisdom that is there and see the beauty of own culture and connect from there to a global community. So within the Global Eco-Village Network, we, um, we nourish a next-gen, a youth movement within Gen, where people from all cultures can meet each other on this level of knowing we love our culture, we love nature, We love community, and um, it's really in the mirroring of each other that the beauty becomes seen. So it's it's very difficult for a young indigenous Indian woman who's 
like the lowest caste in India to really see her own beauty. And Mm -hmm. often she needs to come and visit a community in Europe, you know, where her beauty is reflected to her and the wisdom, you know, she knows 45 ways to create different kinds of compost from cow manure. She Mm -hmm. knows how to create medicines that heal, um, that heal malaria from herbs. You know, she has such wisdom. But in her own culture, she's low caste. You know, she's... But then in a group of of mixed people from all corners of the world, suddenly her beauty becomes seen and celebrated and she's able to go back to her people, a different person able to to share with others her beauty, to even teach courses to government officials, you know. So there's something about this... Um, celebrating each other's ancestry and becoming rich and beautiful in each other's eyes. And I see such a longing for indigenous culture in the Western world. That's right. Um, So there's a lot we can give to each other in honoring and celebration of our ancestry. And I think it's a, a core ingredient if we want to survive our present challenges to really bring together the richness of our ancestry, the knowledge of where we come from, and marry that to all the innovative solutions that we're creating now. So future primitives is a, you know, we, we sometimes speak about ancient futures, so it's very, very yes. similar. Yes. But bringing ancestry and the call of the future together into a, a truly rooted, innovative movement is inspiring. Thank you so much, Kosha, for your um, your heartfelt meandering today. <laughs> Beautiful. And uh, I know you're going to go and fetch your child, girl or boy, a daughter, your daughter from school, and so I uh, just want to tell you that uh, it it truly has been a joy to be with you today. Yes, thank you so much, and I could speak a lot more about love for nature, but I think it's, you know, maybe just the last sentence, I think, is at the core of what we're trying to do, is I feel like... um, at this moment in time, we, we have this very, very strange belief system that, or it seems like we have it, that we can't live on this planet without destroying it, which is so strange because humans have been living on the planet um, as guardians of the planet for centuries, you know. So I think what we're trying to do in the Global Eco-Village Network is really um, re restating that we as humans and as parts of human community cannot only sustain life around us and within us, but we can actually regenerate it. So we can be part of nature and listen to it so deeply that we can support life in all its systems. And we are, of course, intelligent enough to do that. We just need to know it and practice it. So, yes. Sharing our love for planet and people and all beings on this earth. 
Thank you so much for this conversation. I really enjoyed Joanna. Oh, good. Good, good, good.